Welcome to the Licensing Podcast, where we take what may seem like the extremely boring and try to make it a little less boring. Each episode is geared towards a story to help provide you with some of the background of where these topics come from, why they work the way they work, and what you can do about it on your test. We're going to provide a lot of realism. Unfortunately, you can only provide so much fun. Today's session is going to focus on non-equity options, and only really a couple of them. So by definition, we just want to remember that a non-equity option is one that does not involve equity. Our equity options or our stock options are things that you want to think about like a Google call, where if I go long and I exercise, I'm getting the stock at the end of the day. Or a Verizon sold put, where again, if I'm exercised or assigned in that case, then I'll be being forced to buy the stock. It's a position where one side is giving cash and the other side is giving the stock. The non-equity options then are various positions where when you ask for delivery of the option, there's no stock to give. So it becomes a little tricky in terms of what is it that you do give. The material does a great job of highlighting a couple different versions of this story. Really quickly, there are things like index options, interest rate options, the VIX. Those all fall into this non-equity space. But this is a lighter tested topic. So I'm only going to focus on two that tend to give our students the bigger problem or that are more likely to be seen. Today, we're going to talk about index options and then tell a quick story about world currency options. So let's go index options first. In order to understand why index options are a little bit different than equity options, you really just want to understand the history. I'm not even going to make up a story this time around. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the OEX. So the timeline is the late 70s, early 80s. Stock options have been traded for a long time, but people are starting to wonder if it's possible to start hedging or gaining speculative positions on the market as a whole. There's a great interest at the time in macroeconomic strategies. The Chicago Board of Exchange decides to tackle this problem. Now, one of the psychological barriers you have to jump over in order to create a new product is to overcome the fear your investors are going to have with a new product. We as humans just tend to be afraid of the things that are unfamiliar to us. The easiest way to overcome that fear is to make the new thing look a lot like the old thing so that it's more understandable. And as such, in the beginning, these index options look a lot like the equity counterparts. Their multiples are 100. Their calls go in the money when the market goes up. Their puts go in the money when the market goes down. The only real big difference here being that there's nothing to actually deliver stock-wise, so we just make the delivery cash. One of the other distinctions is the difference between American and European-style trading. The stock options up until now had been American-style, which means they traded whenever, and they exercised whenever. So when SIBO created the very first index option on the S&P 100, so the ticker symbol there was OEX, they just made it American style and they began trading in it. A couple of months later, they did a little data analysis to see who was using the product and how was it being used and how could we make it better. And they found a very interesting thing that will change how index options work today. An index option today has only cash settlement and is European style in nature. In fact, the OEX is the only one nowadays that still is American in nature. But again, it's the history that does that to us. So let's go back to why it's now European. It turns out that the primary customer of the index option is a portfolio manager. And I want you to think like a mutual fund or a hedge fund portfolio manager, somebody who manages a large position of various products. Let's pretend I'm running a stock mutual fund. 
if I wanted to protect that mutual fund from the downside, I would have to go out before 1983 and buy each individual put on each individual position. So if I was long Google, I would have to go out and buy Google puts. If I was long Verizon, I'd have to go out and buy Verizon puts as well. If I was long Apple, I'd have to go out and buy Apple puts. So hopefully you can see this is getting pretty expensive fast. All of these are purchases, they're buys, which means money leaving my pocket. Slightly worse, or at least antithesis to what I want to have happen, is in order to make the money back, the exercise implies that I'll be losing the stock position. If I decide that it's not the best for me to sell the put back, but rather to actually exercise the put to regain the value, I'll have to be selling away the stock that I have. And I want you to remember that mutual fund managers are buy and hold kind of people. They're not in positions where they want to get rid of their stock on a yearly basis. Some of these guys will hold that stock for years and years and years. So the index option solved a lot of problems for them. Here, I could buy an index option based upon the index that my mutual fund was kind of mirroring anyway. And now if the market went down, my index put was gaining value and I could exercise for cash and not have to give up my stock position. So for me, it was winning the best of all the worlds involved. The only thing, in fact, that bothered me is that sold side. If I ever found myself in a position where I was on the sell side, then I could be assigned. And that would mean as a portfolio manager, I had to have a block of cash on hand to cover any kind of assignment. And that was bothersome to me. As a mutual fund manager, I don't like the idea of having to have a cash reserve. I want to choose my own cash reserve, but I don't want to hold a cash reserve for the purpose of redemptions of any kind. So when the Chicago Board of Exchange asked, hey, how do we make this better? I quickly responded, European style. That way I controlled the ability to trade in and out of it. But at the same time, I limited the number of days that I had to worry about exercise if I ever found myself on the short side of the option. And that's why every index option after the OEX is now European style in nature. Is because these things are basically tailor-made for the portfolio manager in mind. And if a retail investor wants to pick up a couple, have at it. The second option that we want to talk about on this call is the world currency option. Now, you've been given a lot of material already in how this space works. The book does a fairly decent job of explaining how it works. Uh, we've got some videos out there that explain some mnemonics like America is epic. I'm going to focus on that one. Let me give you the context behind why that particular mnemonic works. At face value, the mnemonic is America is epic, American exporters want to buy puts, and American importers want to buy calls. What I want to tell you is the why. For this example, I'm going to run a company in America, and we're going to create a fake company in a foreign country. I have a weird habit of just picking Japan, I guess. So I've got this foreign company in Japan. Round one is American exporter buys puts. Okay, so... I'm an American exporter means that I'm shipping goods to Japan and getting money back. I'm going to use the pants example that I've been using for a while. So I'm shipping out pants, getting cash. The first thing you got to really think about is the reality that there's no such thing as a dollar call option or a dollar put option. I don't have a way to lock in dollar yen conversions on the dollar side of the line. That just isn't a product that exists. So it's actually in my nature even if I might be the more powerful company, to negotiate the contracts in the foreign currency. Because if I negotiate the contract in the foreign currency, I can go get options on the foreign currency that will help me to hedge my positions, whether I'm buying or selling. So 
I'm thinking that I want a million dollars for these pants, but I'm going to negotiate the contract into yen. I don't know what the, the current foreign currency exchange rate is. We're just going to make it up. A million dollars needs to turn into two million yen. So I write the contract for two million yen. The thing I worry about is I'm not going to pay until the boat gets across the ocean. Think back to the prime banker's acceptance conversation in the debt section, right? So we're agreeing on a price now, but money isn't changing hands for a later date. So out goes the boat, and a little while later, I'm going to get the money. Well, I get 2 million yen that I can't spend here in America. Nobody here takes yen. So I need to turn that back into dollars. I need to give back yen and get dollars. Or said another way, I need to sell yen and get dollars. What I'm worried about is the yen moves against me while my boat is going across the ocean. So I want to lock in the fact that 2 million yen will sell for a million dollars today. I want to lock in the sell price of the product. And hopefully that's where you hear the bot put. If I buy a yen put, I'm locking in the fact that 2 million yen will turn into $1 million. Our American importer then. So here, I'm getting something back from the Japanese company, and I'll be paying out cash. So let's not use pants, change up example, let's go TVs. So the boat of TVs is going to come from Japan, I'm importing the TVs, and I'm going to give dollars. But again, I don't want the contract to be in dollars because I can't protect myself on the dollar side of the line. So I negotiate the contract in yen, which actually even makes the Japanese company happy. They need the yen to spend the yen. My problem now is I don't have yen. So I need to go out and buy it. I need to give somebody dollars and get yen from them. I need to buy yen. Once we do that, the problem becomes exactly the same. $1 million worth of TVs equals 2 million yen. But 30 days later, the yen might move against me, and now I've got to fork out a million and a half to get that same 2 million yen. That's a problem for me. That, that made the TVs too expensive. So right now, today, I want to lock in the ability to choose to buy the yen at a specific price. I want the right to buy the yen at a specific price. And hopefully that sentence there you hear, that's the bought call. American importers buy calls. If you get that really tricky question where you look down at the answer, you're going to use America as epic, and then there's four choices where you are selling things, just remember that the sell side can achieve the same goal. You just lose the control aspect of it. But if that's the only way to answer the question, then that's what you got to go with. So if I wanted to be an American exporter buying puts and my choices are I'm only allowed to sell things, then I really need to be selling calls. That's going to achieve the same goal. If I was an American importer who wanted to buy calls, but I don't have that choice down on the board and I need to do it through the sell side, um, then I want to go with selling puts because the end result will still be the same. I'm getting the dollar or the yen at the price that I want them for. The only thing that I lose is my ability to control the scenario. So by way of summary today, we talked a little bit about non-equity options, and I told you a little bit of history around index options and world currency options. There's some mnemonics in that space that'll make it go quicker and easier, but I hope a little bit of the history will help you keep it more anchored in your brain. That's our session for today. I'll see you next time.